Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. Om Shanti, everyone. Welcome to the Next Normal, hosted by the Brahma Kumaris Meditation Museum in collaboration with America Meditating Radio, which I host a daily podcast that you can get in various networks around the world. We're at a time that our lives are calling us from the inside to respond in a way that has deeper meaning, deeper significance, and maybe even deeper purpose that could lead us towards a deeper sense of our internal peace. There is a time that, yes, physical survival was essential. But spiritual survival is now our breath. If we don't take care of our inner world, how are we going to survive the various scenes that pop up in our lives that gives us a test paper to show us something that maybe we've missed or to give us a test paper to beat us up a little bit more and give us some more bruises, making us feel that we're a victim instead of being victorious? Life is quite a journey. My special guest today, Dana Miriam, is an author, storyteller, and the founder of the Convener of the Global Peace Initiative of Women, bringing spiritual resources to address critical global challenges, such as conflict, social justice, and ecological scarring of the earth. Over the years, she has worked to bring greater gender balance and balance between the Abrahamic and Dharma-based religious traditions for a more inclusive interfaith movement. Dana is also the author of several books, including her new release, When the Bright Moon Rises, The Awakening of Ancient Memories. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Dana to America Meditating Radio and the Next Normal. So glad that you could join us today. I'm so happy to be here with you. You've been a long-time devotee of Pramahansa Yogananda, and also a practitioner of Kriya Yoga meditation, a student of the text of the Vedic tradition. But tell us a little bit about your backstory and how you somehow, this American person, gets on this path of exploring such Eastern practices. Well, I was quite young, and that's one of the blessings to come into the past young. (laughs) So I just got into college, I was 19, and it was a time when there was the influx of Eastern teachings. So Somebody had a freshman year of college had given me Be Here Now, the book by Ramdas. And Ramdas was speaking in Cambridge. I was in Boston in college. So I went to see him, and that opened up a whole new world. I've been searching spiritually through my teens, but initially as an activist, getting involved in the civil rights movement and the anti war movement. But as soon as I got to college, a whole new world opened my spiritual world, which made me realize that the spiritual work is the deeper activism. So after I had read Be Here Now and went to hear Ramdas speak, someone next handed me Autobiography of a Yogi. So 
soon as I saw Yogananda's picture, I recognized him as my guru, and I wanted to learn meditation. So I wrote to his organization. He had already passed and began a serious meditation practice from the age of 20 on. And I attribute everything that has come to me to that meditation practice. And whenever I gather with young people, that's my only advice to them, (laughs) is develop a regular meditation practice because that is your raft that will carry you through life. And it has to be sincere. It has to be regular. One has to do one's best, you know. There are many obstacles, a restless mind, all the demands of life, children, work, everything that crowds the mind. But if we can make it a regular habit, then one is spared. You have to go through life's trials. Everyone does. But you're spared much suffering if you have that to cling to. So that's my backstory. So I spent my 20s, I got married in college and had children young. And I spent my 20s not working, raising my kids and studying the Gita in particular, the Upanishads, other spiritual texts. And then I got divorced and had to go to work to support my kids. And then it was in my 40s that I came into the interfaith work by having the opportunity to organize the first big religious summit at the UN. And that's where I met a beloved daddy junkie in the effort to, beginning of organizing that summit at the UN in 2000. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. So going back to a little bit of your story of your 20s, when you met Ram Das, and of course, every time any one of us met Ram Das, it was like, yeah, right? But here you are, fast forward a few decades into the future. How do you interpret meditation now in your life and path of spirituality? What sits in you and what's your conversation now, so many decades later, being a practitioner? Well, the conversation has changed greatly. To me, the guru is no longer an outer form, it's the inner being. So my conversations are the guru within, internally. And I no longer look without for answers. Everything comes from within. But it takes a long time. And one has to have the two qualities that I struggled with and that are essential on the spiritual path, in my mind, are patience and perseverance. You know, I remember when I was young, and it was difficult to sit for 20 minutes, and I met somebody who told me they meditated for two hours, and I thought, he's enlightened. (laughs) He can meditate for two hours. (laughs) Now I realize it's not the duration. It's the depth of the quality, too. The quality. I know I've spoken to some people who've said, oh, they're constantly in meditation, and I accept their interpretation. There might be, like, there's an awareness of a you that is, on alert, maybe just monitoring you all the time. And as you're going through the motions of the day, that's happening. But you know that ever so often, it'll tap you in your mind and just say, hey, remember me for a little bit. Hey, I don't think you should do what you're about to do. You know, it kind of hits you a little bit at a time. I think that's one of the benefits that comes after your meditation is that you don't end your meditation when you get up from the Exactly, from the mat, yeah. It's a continual state, and you lose it, and then you come back to it. But what's happened to me, and in the writing of my books, have been another stage in my transformation, I would say, because it opened the door to the past, so I no longer think of myself as Dina. You know, Dina is just another name, another personality, and a long list of names and personalities. And so I'm much more detached, I should say, in a positive way, not in a negative way, in that I see 
my life as another role that I'm playing. Um, Like you go to a movie and you watch a movie and you're totally engrossed in that character while you're in the movie. But then often what happens to me, if I like the actor, I want to see other roles that the actor has performed in. So then I watch the actor in a totally different role, performing that role. So it's changed my whole sense of identity. And it's also opened the door into other dimensions. We know what we would call the celestial worlds. I think science is on the verge of discovering other dimensions, other subtler levels of being that our senses can't perceive. And those dimensions are as real as this dimension. With the opening of spiritual perception, you expand your ability to perceive subtle realms of of existence of being. That's one of the benefits of having an introspective life, isn't it? That you really can transcend so many interior dimensions that exist because the soul has been on such a long journey and it perhaps wants to heal certain experiences of the past. Yeah, I've been very curious about the interior journey that I've been on and I guess the pandemic has amplified my interest and my intrigue in identifying all the amazing processes and experiences that I'm carrying and that I've become today. And at the same token, I'm just so opened in allowing that energy of light to disseminate whatever blockages are still not allowing me to feel one with myself. And it's been a huge thing. I remembered many years ago when I attended the first interfaith program. It was such a big deal here. It was being done by Clark Lobenstein. Remember United Religions? But then also he had another thing before that. And I remember, you know, how we used to dream that one day all faiths could just keep sitting and talking about each other's strengths and each other's wisdom and and there would be world peace. And we're still putting different groups together to see how their voices can initiate world peace. Can you share with me what is the importance you feel of interfaith activities for our world at this time? Well, it's interesting you ask that because I've been telling people that the Global Peace Initiative for Women has moved from interfaith to interspecies work because we've been doing interfaith work for over 20 years and we've developed a core group of people who no longer have to talk about interfaith. We no longer have to say, for my tradition, this is what we think about the environment, for my tradition, quoting different things. We've been doing that for years, but collectively, We need to come together to connect our minds with all the species, animal and plant, that are going through stress on the planet. To my mind, that's where the work, you know, when I came into the interfaith world in the 1990s, there were very few women and there was no participation from the Dharma to the Eastern traditions, minimal, token. And so I said, okay, this is something that I can contribute in raising the voice of women and in balancing the East and West. And so I worked for many years to do that. Now I feel that's been done. You know, almost all interfaith organizations have, you know, women as prominent part of them and been recognized the need. I mean, it's still not there yet. There's still, there's still issues to be dealt with. But I don't feel that I can contribute much more in that way. But where I feel I can contribute is helping people become conscious of the other life forms. And so it's not, we evolve into a society that's not so human-centric. Where, you know, if you go to the climate talks, it's all about impacts on us. I remember the last climate summit I went to at the UN, which was two years ago, I had had a dream of a whale. And the whale 
came up right close to me and looked at me. And I said to the whale, I hear you. I went to the climate conference thinking, well, I have to represent the whales here. So I went to all the sessions on the seas. And it was all about how the changing climate is going to impact um, tourist assets, you know, impact fishing, you know, all about humans. Never mind the billions of life forms that are going to disappear. And so I was very, very affected by that experience. And so since then, it's, it's had such an impact that, you know, when we had that heat dome over the Northwest over the summer, and I read that a billion sea animals had died, I felt my consciousness there in the sea, in the ocean with that. I think, I mean, the interface movement can play a role in this by doing this collectively across cultures and faiths. But I think we need to expand our consciousness to the grand elders, the, the sequoias who are dying now in, in the forest, to the whales who are ingesting so much plastic, to all of the life forms that are causing because of our self-centric behavior. And I think that's the challenge of the interface movement now. Yeah, beautiful. Well said. It's the challenge for all of us, I think, if each one really just become more responsible to recognizing that they're a part of nature, you know, and then the quality of their thinking in their personality impacts the elements. I think there'd be such a big turnaround. Like you'd really recognize how much you're impacting the climate and just the world in general and all the species involved. I think we get separated thinking, you know, that's them and that's me and that's our tourism and this is our country and it just takes away the real answer. For politicians, it's about all about economics. And I say to myself, well, people have to have jobs. You know, it's true. We do have to maintain a large population. That's yeah. what we have, we have to deal with. But the answers are there within. We haven't collectively tapped the spiritual resources to see how we can do both. How yeah. can we preserve life preserve the balances in nature while maintaining ourselves on this planet in a new way. The only way is not just more and more consumption. There is another way. I mean, we haven't found it yet because we haven't tapped into that intuitive knowledge, the wisdom. Yeah, yeah. And I think we need to become still enough to be able to sense that intuitive wisdom. You know, we're still so busy on the outside. I mean, the reason why you and I got together today is to discuss your new book, When the Bright Moon Rises, The Awakening of Ancient Memories, a rich and extensive story of our past lives. I love exploring past lives. I also love the present, and I can't wait for the future one. Tell us a little bit about the book. (laughs) This experience came to me while I was in India, Varanasi, actually. And the beauty of the experience, actually, is that it brought me into the Satya Yuga. I was able to envision a time at a much higher level of consciousness when we were in harmony with everything, when we saw the rivers, we saw the goddesses in the rivers, we saw the, the work of the deities in everything. And so they say in the Satya Yuga, when consciousness is more in tune with the high vibrations, that you can actually perceive the deities, the beings in subtler realms and other dimensions. And that was how humans lived. And I thought to myself, the reason I wanted to share it through a book is we all have that collective memory. It's just so deeply repressed and buried under so many lifetimes since that time of what it was to like to live in a society. There was no hierarchy, no concept of domination. It wasn't that one group. There wasn't religion as such in terms of institutions. There was just living in Dharma, living in harmony, recognizing the forces of the universe. There was no conflict. There was no war. 
There were no standing armies. There were no weapons. I mean, there was the, the bow and the arrow. I mean, there were things that you had to do. It's not that there were not some rascals around, but it was a much different level. And so that vision is important for us to know what we can work for now. We might not achieve it immediately, but try to rebalance our world and to know that part of our responsibility is safekeeping the balance in nature, the ecosystems, not disrupting them. I mean, we've damaged so much of ecosystems. It's like we've gone so far off course. And of course, we've come through a long period of Kali Yoga, Yoga where there's been a complete separation and overemphasis on ego identity, which we have to evolve beyond now. And so in the writing of the book enabled me to peer into this time period and to understand the Vedas as they were understood at that time, which was just seeing the internal and external powers, us being one with them, that the external powers were a manifestation of what we already have inside. Indra, not just the god of the skies, but the domain of the higher mind. So there's a connection between the internal and external. I got to see the Vedas in a totally different light. And then, of course, the character in the book takes another incarnation in China thousands of years later and gets to experience a Taoist life. And so I got to experience a Taoist life, which I hadn't known much about before writing this book. And I come into a relationship with Lao Tzu and see the similarity between the teachings of the Vedas and the teachings of Taoism. So my interfaith work is now manifesting in this way and being able to experience firsthand what it was like to live during the Vedic period and what it was like to live as a Taoist. So from knowing your past lives, how does that help you to understand yourself today? Any thoughts? I've been thinking about this for many years now because initially when I started to see visions of my past lives, what has interested me, because it's not a matter of whether the incarnation is true or not, it's a matter of understanding the workings of the law of cause and effect of karma. And I began to see patterns emerge. I began to understand why I was committed to this work of women. It's something a long time in coming. It's not something that just emerged in this life. A long time in coming through the many lifetime experience. I got to understand my interest in the interfaith work and trying to see the unity behind these different manifestations of truth. So I got to understand a lot about myself. I also understood behavioral patterns that I struggled with. People think of karma, oh, it's my karma, I got sick, it's my karma who I marry. It's also behavioral patterns. I got to understand that for many lifetimes, I I suffered from low esteem, as many women do, not having confidence in themselves, not having confidence that they have a voice. And when I entered the interfaith world and saw that there was no room for women, really, nobody made room for women, it awakened in me this pattern that had been with me a long time of not having confidence in myself as a woman. As a Brahma Kamara, you could well understand the power that women have when they are free to manifest it. But society for many, many millennia, in the higher ages, in the Satya Yuga, this distinction was not made. There were women rishis. The women wrote the Vedas. I mean, they were great women saints and sages until the decline, you know, until the last few thousand years. And now... We're emerging from that, and women are finding the voice, and women are leading spiritual organizations. So understanding my past has helped me understand my present. And beyond that, the most important thing is I've realized as my past behavior has determined my present, so my present is determining my future. 
that's very important for us to be cognizant of, that we are laying the blueprint for our future. And we can do it consciously or unconsciously. I get that. You know, sometimes we are curious to travel back in time. And based on your understanding, how far back in time can a soul go as far as their experience on Earth? And how many lives do you think we could have lived? I know in my Brahma Kumari's tradition, one of the things that I had learned through the teachings is a soul has a minimum capacity. It can take only one birth or it can take as many as 84 births. And I know that they've cut that down into what it is. And I will say, okay, you know, whether it's 84 or 60, it fascinates me that even past two births, I wonder what the recording is inside of me. So how far back in time, I mean, do you have an idea of how many births you could actually travel to? I remember about 20 births. Sequentially, I've been able to sequence them for the last 2,000 years. And then there are a few before that that I remember. My interest goes back and my memory goes back to the melting of the ice the last time, which is why I've been fascinated with that period, which they say was the beginning of the declining Satya Yuga was about 11,000 BCE when the cycle began to turn downward. You know, And I've also been very interested in the whole Yuga cycle, but that was also when the ice began to melt and human society shifts began to take place migrations, water rose 400 feet. So here we are again facing melting of the ice. We're not talking about 400 feet. We're talking about maybe, you know, six to 10 feet. 400 feet is a lot. And this is all scientific that the oceans rose 400 feet. They don't know over what time period. Was it hundreds of years? Was it a thousand years? But land was submerged. That's when the land link between Asia and the Americas was submerged and people crossed over. So That's as far back as I can go. Mother went back about 40-something lives, and it was fascinating. The things that she, the soul, went back in time and visualized and envisioned and saw. And then she came back, and here she was in this present-day existence. But that lingering, and my personal efforts now is let go of all of those stories. Be so present and keep allowing God's light to now inspire your thinking and your doing. And there's a lot of conversations now, Dana, about reincarnation, past lives. It keeps emerging more and more for the general public. Is this a new step for our evolution, you think? You think this is going to help people to be a little bit more mindful about their choices or about their karmas? You know, I think there's been a huge leap forward. If you look back from when we were younger and beginning our practice of meditation, one couldn't talk about these things openly. After I published my first book, which is my journey through time, uh, which went went through seven lives, and I got a call from a, a dear friend who had been the head of the Merton Institute, Christian theologian, and he said, I have to talk to you about your book. And I said, oh, no. <laughs> Anyhow, but he told me he was so moved by the book that he went out to study the subject and he found another book by a religious professor at one of the universities who was a psychologist also, who had documented so many cases of people remembering the young children who knew exactly where they died, knew exactly what their previous family was, a young boy who knew he had left three children because he died in a car accident, so many stories like that. He said to me, you can't refuse this anymore. I said, I think we're at the point where science is going to have to accept 
and integrate it into some of the theologies that have repressed this. So I think we are at a new stage. Now, once you recognize that, it changes your whole concept of self, really. After I had finished my first book, I said, so who am I? Am I Dina? Am I that one? Am I that one? Am I that one? So who am I? But you know, you're right about letting go. When the bright moon rises and she's in that book, I experience the remembrance of earlier lives. So it's a character remembering other lives. She goes and puts them all into the river and lets them float away and says, now I want you to be gone. And in a way, we have to do let go. I mean, I have certain attachments to people from previous births and to certain aspects of myself in previous births. And we have to let them all go in order to move forward. Not just move into our next incarnation, to move forward as a soul, to realize that we're not any of these. We're not any of these now. We're different. We're different. And when I look back now, when I write about these past lives, I'm totally in that personality. And, you know, I cry over deaths. I cry over everything. I go through all that life again. And then when I come back to myself, it's like, what was I? That's not me. Where was I? Where was I? (laughs) (laughs) I get that. And I think that's what also this particular time period is offering us in our awakening is a letting go of the past and a moving towards a healed consciousness where I have to go through what I went through now. Here I am today. What is it that's needed of me? I want to dive a little bit more into something that you said earlier, too, about your travel from, you know, Eastern traditions from like the Gita, the Upanishads, the Vedas, and then you brought the character to China where now you were studying the Tao and all of that. You know, how could the understanding of the ancient culture of China better help us understand China as a nation today? But also, what would you say is the relationship between China and India? It's very important. I dedicate my book to the people of India and China because the book, this will be a bit of an issue in China. First of all, I was very surprised because I had not identified with Chinese culture before I found myself in Tang, China, in 18th century China. As a woman poet, unrecognized woman poet, but the wife, the fourth wife, was actually the second wife of a very prominent poet, Levi, who's beloved in China today. But I recognized him as having had a connection from the Vedic period. This Vedic soul in India, reborn as Levi, the poet in China. That may be very controversial to some people in China today, but I came to understand the spiritual energy of China. It gave me a deep love for the spiritual energy of China. And so empires come and go. China had a succession of empires for the past three, 4,000 years. And what they have now is just another version of that. It will change because that's the nature of, of our life. It's constant change. It may be 100 years. It may be 20 years. We don't know when. There'll be a shift. But the spiritual energy of China is very strong, and I think it is emerging. The young people that I work with in China who are among the deepest Buddhist practitioners that I know also feel deeply connected to spiritual energy of India. They were awakened through their connection with India and then came back, and many of them practiced Tibetan Buddhism. So my interest, I'm writing a book now on 13th century Tibet. The connection between the whole area, the karmic connection between India, Tibet, and China is of great interest to me. Because what I'm finding is that the indigenous religion, I find myself in the body of a 12th century woman who is a practitioner of the ancient bone tradition, which is very, very old and has many similarities with the Vedic tradition, which I'm writing about. 
many, many, many similarities. And one of the great yoginis of that time, of um, Yeshe Shogol, the consort of Guru Rinpoche, begins her autobiography by saying she's an emanation of Saraswati. Yeah. Many, many similarities, which I think have not yet come out because the Tibetan tradition is so old, India tradition yeah. is so old. We're talking about maybe 10,000 BCE. So the connection between India and China, now, of course, these are the two emerging powers of the future. You know, now it's China's moment, but it will soon be India's moment. And so that's where I would like to contribute since I recognize myself as a person of Chinese heritage, <laughs> spiritually. And, yeah. you know, there's no place I've incarnated more than in India. <laughs> I'm sure. so many incarnations in India. It can get so exciting, you know, when you think about all the various lifestyles that we've had, how many births we've gone in and out of, and the present one just bubbles up with the sum total of all that karmic story that we're carrying. You know, your book, I think, is definitely opening up many chapters in people's portals. It's inviting them to really think more about their journey of life and the importance of us actually moving towards a space of acceptance, deep, deep acceptance, when you can travel throughout many lives and have maybe different religious paths, then there's no other conclusion you have but to just accept everything with love. As we get to the close of our time together, is there an insight that you're carrying with you currently as we navigate during these specific times where the world is suffering the same collective karmic fate, let's say COVID, for example, economic insecurity, lockdown, isolation, depression, things like this that are taking place. But there's also a collective awakening happening. But on your side, personally for yourself, what are you realizing about the times that we're in that you feel like, oh, this is what I'm learning. This is what I think we're all trying to learn. Do you have one? I do. In every lifetime, there's always been somebody that has expressed to me one simple fact. The foundation of this universe is love. The foundation manifested in so many ways. The love of the deities for us, the love between people, the love of us for the deities. I haven't understood it until this lifetime. Mm -hmm. And now I see that the only way to counter fear that has gripped humanity is through love. And that's why I think this expanding our consciousness to include all the species, the seeing ourselves not just as a world community, but as an earth community of multiple species. You know, initially we were all struggling to have humanity come forward as a world community and see our brotherhood. Now it's a brotherhood and sisterhood of species. I think that's the critical evolutionary moment for us that can only happen through love. And yeah. so how do we do that? That's the question. And there are many meditation practices of opening the heart. It's a matter now, the compelling thing for us is to work on the heart chakra, opening that heart chakra so that more of us can feel that love because that will solve all the problems. You know, it will solve the problems of conflict, of domination, of ecological degradation, what we're doing to the climate. We have to come to a place of operating through love. Yeah. Touche. I didn't. Leave us with a website where our audience can get more information on you. And thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a delight. And the website is www.gtiw.org, standing for the Global Peace Initiative of Women. I also have an author's page, Nina Miriam Author, 
where I do book readings from the various books, usually once a month. So you can reach me on Facebook and my author's page or at gpiw.org. Thank you, Dana Miriam. It's been a great delight. Everybody, Dana's left us with a lot of things to percolate on. And really, I love the part about the past lives and our stories. I mean, to what extent have we traveled throughout time and have been through so much? And is there something in this current lifetime of yours that you're stuck with? Are you still being a little bit one-sided on one particular topic or issue that's happening? Or are you finding yourself struggling in a relationship that's just not giving you the love that you think you deserve? Is all of that coming from some past incarnation, a past life experience? Do I need to travel through all the religions to really understand that love is the only way? How much more do we have to go through to recognize the power of these four letters? I leave you to answer that. Just remember, no matter what you go through, you're going to be okay at the end of the day. So thank you so much for joining us today. Have an extremely wonderful day. And remember, no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission. And we really are here to practice loving each other the same. Thanks, everybody. Take good care. Om Shanti. Be well. And love each other the same. Bye. Meditation. Intimate experiences with the divine through contemplative practices. My new book that is out on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and you can get it from Sacred Stories Publishing or on America Meditating Radio. Rice Alley Restaurant wishes you happy holidays. Located at 6838 Piedmont in Gainesville, Virginia. We're a family-owned restaurant and offer authentic Asian cuisine and sushi. Come Savor our delicacies made with love and enjoy the perfect ambiance. We look forward to seeing you there. I'm Sister Jenna. You've been listening to America Meditating Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Did you enjoy that conversation? Because you can also listen to it on Spotify or on iTunes 24-7, anytime, anywhere. I do trust we all have inner power to become our very best. When we listen with curiosity to learn more, we grow. So thanks so much for tuning in, and do be easy on yourself. Take care.